India's biggest IPO is all set to hit the market, while the CBI is struggling to find out the mysterious Himalayan guru who was de facto running the National Stock Exchange. The union government who declared in the budget that it needs a share of money from cryptocurrencies now seems to have second thoughts about it. Hello and welcome to another episode of You, Me and the Economy. Here is your weekly roundup of economy and finance. The government's take on cryptocurrency is marred in contradictions. The government has still not recognized cryptocurrencies but has levied tax on the same in the present budget, thereby legalizing it. Despite the high tax rate of 30% announced on crypto, one section seems to celebrate it. Nishal Shetty, the CEO of Wazir X, noted, by bringing in taxation, the government legitimizes the industry to a large extent. Yet, days after, the finance minister in Rajya Sabha said, taxing it doesn't mean legalizing it. We have taxed the profit from the transactions. I'm not doing anything to legalize it or ban it. Legitimate or illegitimate is a different question. This shows utter chaos on the government's side regarding the issue. Major announcements have also been made in the budget for the upcoming digital rupee with no clarity over the regulatory mechanism needed. RBI Deputy Governor lashed out at cryptos, saying that far from getting regulated, they must be banned. The RBI is of the stand that cryptocurrency is a threat to the macroeconomic stability of the country, the banking system, the currency, the monetary authority, and finally, the ability of the government to control the economy. A more uncanny drama is unfolding at the National Stock Exchange. A number of former chief executive officers, managing directors, top management staff and NSE employees are being investigated by the Income Tax Department, the SEBI and the CBI with respect to the corruption stories of the otherworldly Himalayan guru. The series of investigations started in 2013 with complaints of irregularities in corporate governance with respect to the appointment of Anand Subramaniam. The latest SEBI investigation reveals that the former NSE chairperson, MD and CEO Chitra Ramakrishna was manipulated by an unknown Himalayan spiritual guru. Some people claim that this is an imaginary identity created by one or many people in key positions. NSE is the largest exchange in the world in terms of contract trade and second largest in the terms of currency futures traded, with a market capitalization of rupees 203 lakh crore. It is unnerving to know that the CEO shared confidential information pertaining to the running of the NSE with an unknown person. Earlier in 2015, the co-location scam revealed a nexus of NSE officials and private brokers taking advantage of NSE service and thereby getting early access to the stock exchange and for making gains in trading. The latest fiasco also reflects a complete failure on the part of investigating agencies and their regulating body SEBI. Amidst all this, the LIC IPO comes across as a jolt on the little security available to the people of this country. The People's Commission on Public Sector and Public Services has been expressing its grave concerns around the impending initial public offering of up to 5% of government's stake in LIC for the purpose of generating resources for the government. The People's Commission, which has been vocal against privatization of PSUs, noted that it is a matter of concern that the IPO is happening in the midst of a pandemic, which has destroyed millions of livelihoods and which requires an immediate expansion of social protection measures, a task that the LIC has performed commandably over the last several decades. The government is keen to push the public offering in March itself despite the looming crisis over Ukraine and high market volatility. The government is desperate to achieve the country's largest IPO with utter disregard for the ways in which this would alter the character of LIC, which has served as the biggest social security net for millions of poor Indians. These people form the bulk of policyholders. Though LIC has seen its market share shrink over the years, 
with an astonishing 98.62% claim settlement ratio, it still holds a whopping 64.14% market rate. With all the remaining 23 private sector insurance together have just 35.86% of market share. Out of the total assets managed by LIC, approximately one-third belong to non-participatory policyholders. Earlier, LIC used to share 95% of the total profit with the shareholders. Whereas now, the whole profit from non-participatory policies is separated and will solely be shared by shareholders, which in turn will result in indirect decline in the return for policyholders. And the apprehension is that under the pressure of private shareholders who are interested only in the short-term gains, the policy premium of LIC will increase while its rural outreach would decrease. The People's Commission has expressed its grave apprehensions in letters to SEBI, IRDA, the Cabinet Secretary, and has also addressed the press. The selling spree of the government is well known to us. The question is where is the government investing, or what is it building? As per the budget speech, one major plan is to expand the national highway network by 25,000 km. According to sources, the plan is to boost the highway budget by 30% with the goal of completing 50 km of roadways every day by 2022. But the recent report shows that the highway construction palmated to a four-year low of 22.2 km per day. This was mainly due to several cyclones and heavy rain in the southern state. According to the data, India developed highways at the rate of 26 km per day in 2019 and 26.4 km per day in 2020. In the last financial year, despite the pandemic, the rate was 30.4 km per day. According to the data from the Ministry of Road, Transport and Highways, highway construction fell in all months except April and December, and the sharpest drop was in January. Keeping in mind the fact that the rate of construction has slowed down in recent months, the government has cut down this year's aim from 40 km per day to 33 km per day. Certainly, all development activities take a heavy toll on our natural resources, and in light of the climate crisis, it becomes even more complicated. As per the Future of Global Coal Production report by Elements, India and China will consume two-thirds of the global coal production. China will lead with 50% of total global coal production, followed by India with a 12% share. While Indonesia, the US and the European Union will see a reduction in coal production, the highest being the European Union with a 23% reduction in coal consumption. China has announced to cut down coal consumption in 2026, but has also announced the construction of 43 new coal-fired power plants to meet energy demands until then. Solar and other renewable energy initiatives achieve lower per unit production cost when compared to coal-fired thermal power plants, but India is still increasing its coal production. While the US plans to retire 28% of its currently operational coal-fired capacity by 2035, in India, we have numerous thermal power plants that have outlived their production age, but no decision has been taken about their retirement so far. All is not well with the present model of coal plants in the country. Similar to protest against the Hasteo Arend coal mines in Chhattisgarh and Gondalpura coal mines in Jharkhand, the Deocha Pachami coal project also recently witnessed protest from local communities. Located in Birbhum district of West Bengal, it has an estimate of over 2,000 million tons of coal spread over 9.7 kilometers. Several human rights and environmental activists have raised questions on the proposed plan that is likely to displace 5,000 families. Under the banner of Birbhum Mahasabha, a protest rally was organized on February 20th to demand scraping of proposed coal mine. 
The activists said that a misleading propaganda has started that the villagers are willing to give land voluntarily. This coal block is allocated to West Bengal Power Development Corporation and around 35,000 crore investment is proposed to be made in this block. The coal from these mines is expected to generate power for 100 years. Even if there is a clarity that there is no future of coal power plants and it should be phased out, the governments are still pushing for coal mines. Another power project in news is the Tata Mundra Ultra Mega Power Project. The Buddha Ismail Jam et al versus IFC case, also known to many of us as the Tata Mundra project, is due to be heard again in the US Supreme Court for a decision regarding IFC's immunity. Last week, prominent economic, legal, diplomatic and civil society experts including Joseph Stiglitz, a Nobel Prize winning economist and former vice president and chief economist of the World Bank, submitted amicus briefs urging the United States Supreme court to hear the case concerning immunity from suit from the World Bank group and foreign nations. In this case, the Earth's Rights International represents members of the fishing and farming communities and Machimar Adhikar Sangharsh Sangathan in Gujarat, India suing the International Finance Corporation over its role in funding a coal-fired power plant that destroyed livelihood of local people. In fact, IFC's own internal compliance office had issued a scathing report in 2013, confirming its failure to ensure that Tata Mun project compiled with the environmental and social conditions of its loan at virtually every stage of the project and thereby calling IFC to take remedial action. It remains to be seen what course this case will take in next few months. And now about a new book on what is happening with our economy. It's titled An Unkept Promise: What Derailed the Indian Economy. Written by senior journalist Prasanna Mohanty, the book looks at the economic landscape of India since Modi took over in 2014 and explains what went wrong based on data and hard evidence. What makes this book stand out is the way it places the economic analysis within the large political canvas, reiterating that political institutions, political environment and the economic system are interwoven. They have to be looked at in their entirety rather than as watertight compartments. The period Mohanty covers in this book has seen a deliberate disregard for facts, evidence and data in favor of outwardly claims, rhetoric and a divisive agenda. The book identifies demonetization and rolling out of GST as the two major setbacks which accelerated the economy in its downward slide. While a lot has been already said about these, Mohanty traces back the origins of the idea of demonetization and laments that no democratic institutions stood up to protest it, emboldening the autocratic streak of the new government. The book is a blueprint for any future government. It captures in detail the contours of an abject economy we inherited, followed by a series of mindless economic decisions taken by the government since 2014, and tells us where to start rebuilding it. So that was all for this week. We'll meet next week with more news on economy and finance. Keep listening to You Me and the Economy.